Greetings, Word Horde. We're here with an exciting option for you, a version of our podcast without any ads. That's right. No advertising interruptions, just the content you love, ready to go in your favorite podcast apps like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It's another way to support the show, ensuring that we keep bringing you the word stories and language explorations that you love. Try it at waywardradio.org slash adfree. And it's affordable. For just a small subscription fee, you can enjoy Away With Words uninterrupted, except by us. Plus, it makes a great gift. Know somebody who loves language as much as you do? Give them the gift of words. Easy to sign up, easy to enjoy. It's the same Away With Words, just streamlined for your listening pleasure. Go to waywardradio.org slash adfree. Support us, support the show, and enjoy an ad-free listening experience. waywardradio.org slash adfree. Thank you. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. We talk a lot on this show about etiquette, and recently on our Facebook page, we asked this question. Do you answer phone calls and read text messages during business meetings? Boy, did that stir some debate. (laughs) A lot of strong feelings on both sides, Mm -hmm. right? And we linked to an article that uh, referenced a study that shows that 51% of 20-somethings believe it is appropriate to read text during formal business meetings, whereas only 16% of workers over 40 believe the same thing. And some of the people were saying this on our Facebook page, that maybe it was an age difference. It does seem to be a little bit age-graded, yeah. Although I'm outside that. I'm 43, and for yeah. me, um, I totally do that all the time. <laughs> uh, it, it, text messages, email, anything that comes in on the phone, it depends on the meeting. It depends on what's happening. There's a lot of a meeting that is actually technically downtime, right? I do think that it depends on the context. Um, if I'm in a meeting, especially if, if you've invited people in that aren't your regular core team or mm-hmm. something yeah. with a larger larger group at your company or, or, or clients or something like that, that, uh, I don't know, in that case, I, I think of texting as sort of like blowing your nose. Like it oh, might really? make Yeah, it might make me feel better, but, but I would most likely get up and leave. So context specific it. for yeah. you, right? Yeah. Answering a phone is uh, beyond the pale for me. I would reject all calls, but texting and, and something that's silent, I would totally do. That's my question. Depending what's, on the meeting, depending on the meeting. Yeah, yeah. And what's the difference? Yeah, that, you know, you, you, can... you nailed it. The regular weekly meeting, I'm probably totally fine with that. And as a matter of fact, most of the weekly meetings that I go to and the variety of things that I do here, half the room has their phone out next to their notepad because it's part of doing business. Mm-hmm. It's part of recording things or checking an email or recalling a particular document that you have access to on your phone and mm. you can actually contribute well, to the yeah. meeting. yeah, yeah. There's that risk of getting distracted, though, don't you think? Always. The larger context that I see here on these responses is that there seems to be an understanding, an unstated understanding by a lot of the people who prefer to use their phones during meetings that many meetings are unnecessary. And that's something else worth exploring, right? (laughs) Yeah. There was the guy who said, what did he say? Meetings are vortexes of uselessness and despair. They are a thinly guised temporal vampire bent on ruining all productivity. That was Andy McHugh on our It's so true in many cases cases. And there are companies in the Bay Area where they think about processes as part of doing business where they eliminate meetings or they do only stand-up meetings, Mm -hmm. which is you get one thing to say, one thing to ask, and then you're done. There's that. And then there are people like uh, Julianne Fowler, who's a 27-year-old graphic designer on our page. She said, uh, I think it's about the rudest thing you can do besides fall asleep in a meeting. Wow. I mean, there's there's quite a range of mm-hmm. um, feeling about this. I'd be interested to hear our listeners' feelings about it. And also that study that I referenced earlier was really interesting. It showed that men nearly two to one think that texting during a meeting is fine compared to women. Oh, interesting. Isn't that wow. interesting? Yeah, so I didn't might... know it was gendered. That's very, yeah, very, very yeah. strange. Fascinating hmm. stuff. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this. Call us at 877-929-9673 or step out of that meeting and <laughs> send us an email, words at waywardradio.org. And we're all over Facebook and all over Twitter. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Ann. Hi, Ann. How are you? Hello, Ann. I'm... I'm well, thank you so much. And where are you being well? Well, right now, I'm in a park in Nashville, Tennessee. But I really live in Saugatuck, Michigan. 
there is a word that's been in my family for um, at least two generations, and I found out um, when I was walking and talking with a friend that it's actually not a real word, which just devastated everybody in my family. Oh. Wait, how do you use a word that's not a real word? Well, okay, I'll that's tell you the trick. word. It's oreied. Oreied. Right, and put- it means it means really angry, like far angrier than normal. Mm. And you know, I'm one of six girls, and it was a word that was used quite a bit in my house. From Michigan. Actually, we're from Chicago, but I've lived in Michigan a long time. Okay. Yeah, and it came from my grandmother, my dad's mom, who was very proper. You know, daughter of the Mayflower. She would never swear, but she would get oreyed occasionally. Interesting. And what's the evidence that it's not a word? Well, okay, so I was walking with a new friend at the time who's very erudite, and I said, um, I used the word and she didn't know it, and I thought, well, this is really neat because I actually know something she doesn't. Hmm. And then she said, that's not a word. And I said, yes, of course it is. And she said, no, it's not. So I went home and it wasn't in the dictionary. So then I talked to all my sisters and no one could believe it wasn't real. And actually, one of my sisters found it in a dictionary of slang. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then you all were oreyed about this friend of yours. Yes. I said mm-hmm. it's real. Well, I don't know. Is slang real? I don't know. Oh, yes. Oh, of course it is. Absolutely. Yes, indeed. And there's three things what? happening here that we just want. I want to put these to rest really quickly. Your friend okay. doesn't know everything about yes. the English language. Um, one okay, person's, I'm going to tell her that. One person's <laughs> opinion is not enough evidence to say that a word isn't a word, which I know that sounds contradictory, but that's what, that's basically okay. what she's saying. The second right? thing is, if you've been using this word in your family for three generations, it is, it's by God, word. that's a word. It's totally yeah. a word. You can say it, you can okay, spell it, so it has what, meaning. But what it meant in the slang dictionary it was um, like a sailor's term for drunk. Okay, here we go. Now and We weren't even using it the way it was originally you know, used. English, that wacky beast, has so many meanings. For more, each word has so many meanings. It's crazy. Here's what happened to this word, and it has undergone some transformations. We first okay. see it show up, oh, I don't know, say 1700s or so in Scots, wow. Scottish English, okay? And at that time, it doesn't mean angry, and it doesn't mean drunk. It means dismal or sad or melancholy. Imagine somebody huh. with a, a droopy face and a, a kind of like a sagging demeanor. That's mm. or being ori. O-O-R-I-E, I think, is the preferred spelling. So it meant sad. Sad, yeah. Sad and then we looking. see a transformation huh. where it becomes a little more about looking weak or sick or, or drooping. And oh. then we see it sometimes meaning to to have a chill or to just plain out to be cold, uh, the ori cattle huh. in the pasture, right? Oh. Yeah. Wow. And then, wow. But, we, but, but then you start to think, well, um, some people, you could describe somebody as looking ori who is none of those things. They're not melancholy. They're not sad. They're not cold. But they have that look. And what would give them that look? Well, being drunk or being beside themselves oh. with anger, right, would give them that same yeah. kind of like something happening with the eyes and the and the posture and the demeanor where they are not themselves. They're clearly something other than normal. Right. And so we see the slow transformation of this word over time as it starts to mean these variety of things. So in other words, lots and lots and lots of people have used it over yeah. history. Oh, yeah. oh it, that makes me feel sure. so good. I mean, the tons <laughs> of use. It's, and it shows up. When you talk about consulting the dictionary, there's no such thing yeah. as the dictionary. There are many dictionaries. Right. It shows up in the Century Dictionary. It shows up in the Oxford English Dictionary. It shows up in the Dictionary of American Regional English. It shows up in the Scottish National Dictionary. It shows up the Dictionary of the Scots Tongue. It shows up again and again wow. and again. So, well, it's a Scottish. It's a Scottish word in origin. Originally Scots, borrowed in, uh, borrowed uh, firmly yeah. into English dialects. Oh, so interesting. Yeah. I, this is like a victory for me. This is great. <laughs> well, I'm glad, to Congratulations. You. I'm glad to equip you with uh, all the munitions you need to go out and assail your friends. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I, I never stopped using it, and so now Good. I can use it with great confidence. Indeed. It sounds like you're not yes. lacking in that front, i got to tell you. <laughs> and you sound like a woman who knows what she wants from life. Yes, this is true. This is very true. <laughs> All right. Well, Anne, we appreciate your calling. Yeah, and if you've got anything yes, else from your, you. your family of six sisters or your grandma, give us a call sometime, all right? Okay, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Take care now. Bye-bye. 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 
We'd love to hear your conversations about language. Give us a call, 877-929-9673, or send an email to words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Rob from Moorhead, Minnesota. Hi, Rob. How you doing? Pretty good. How are you? All right. Welcome to the show. How can we help? Well, I am a TV meteorologist, and when I was in college, I had an instructor who insisted that we only use the singular sky as opposed to skies. His rationale was there is only one sky. So you would never say, we'll see sunny skies today. We will see a sunny sky. So I'm just curious, at stations I've worked at, we've had a big debate about what we should use to say sky or skies. How interesting. And where do you come down? Uh, You know, I have always, it was kind of drilled into my brain in college, so I always have deferred to sky. Is that right? So you've never flown the friendly skies of United or, you know... Right, and I know that was big in their their ad campaign as well. But we, I've always, I've always stuck with sky, and it sounds funny because you will off. Most people will say, you know, skies will be sunny tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It's pretty common. Mm-hmm. You hear it on the Weather Channel, a lot of other weather reports. But I've always gone with the singular. I th- I think you keyed in on it when you said it feels right to say skies sometimes. Wouldn't you agree, Grant? Yeah, there's there there are a lot of reasons to use skies here. In places like San Diego County, where we are right now recording our show, uh, we do have skies. We have different weather because the skies over the mountains might be dropping snow and the skies over the beaches might be sunny and the skies in between might have fog. And that's at the same time. Yep. So we do have different skies here and skies is plural. And the other thing is... There's an etymology story here that was worth talking about, right, Martha? Do you remember this one? A very interesting etymology story because sky originally meant cloud. Yeah. In the in the Middle Ages, um, sky could mean either clouds or the firmament, that or, vast or the space. literal heavens, the place that yeah. you ascend to when you die, yeah. or the place that holds God or the gods. Yeah, yeah. It comes from an old Norse word spelled the same way that means cloud. So it's it's got an interesting history behind it. So there's a hanging on here from uh, the 1300s onward of the use of skies to refer to everything above the ground, regardless yeah. of what it is or where it is or how many of them or how big or that. But that is a good point. My viewing area is about the size of Ohio here. We have we cover oh, wow. thousands of square miles. So that it, sounds is, like it is true that the sky conditions would be different across the viewing area. Ah, there we go. So this conforms yeah. to what we see in the pragmatics of the use of the word skies related to this sort of thing. The pragmatics, that's all the stuff that surrounds a usage that isn't about meaning necessarily, but it adds to the context of it. So, for example, in skies... We use skies in English if we're talking about the sky over multiple places at the same time. Mm-hmm. We, When we're talking about a sky at different times, so it is skies because the morning sky and the evening sky could be different skies. And when we're thinking about more than the sky that we can see right now in front of us, I'm thinking about um, the skies over America are beautiful. But the thing is, they're different everywhere. I've mm-hmm. got snow here and rain there and a hurricane coming up over there. It's 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 different. So you, you could easily say North Dakota skies, but maybe you would only say Fargo sky because Fargo is a mm. much smaller area with kind of one consistent thing happening, right? I see. Well, it, it, it may be tough now to to break the habit of, of going with the same oh, you know, sky. I, I got to say, if you avoid saying skies, I think you're totally fine. But I would also argue this is another case of overreach by a professor. Rob, this is fascinating. We're so glad you called. All right. Thanks for the help. All, All right, right. Bye-bye. 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 877-929-9673 or send an email to words at waywardradio.org. And if you just can't wait, find us on Facebook. Hop on the language bus as Away With Words continues. Hey, we've got something special for those of you who love our show but could do without the ads. That's right. Imagine away with words, the same engaging conversations, the same deep dives into language without advertising interruptions. We're talking about our ad-free podcast feed. It's sleek, clean, and it's just for our supporters. It's at waywardradio.org slash ad-free. It's inexpensive easy to sign up for, and works with all major podcast apps like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's an affordable way to support the show and get a seamless listening experience. 
And if you're feeling generous, why not give a subscription to another Away With Words fan? That's waywardradio.org slash adfree. Sign up today. Your support means the world. waywardradio.org slash adfree. Thank you. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett. And we're joined on the line by our quiz guide, John Chinesky. Hi, Grant. Hi, Martha. Hi, Hi buddy. Dad. What's up? What's happening in the quiz world there? We're going to do uh, sort of a, um, a combination, I call a combining quiz today. Oh. I'm going to give you two clues together, and you'll give me a single phrase or an idiom answer. Now, these will take the form blank with the blank. For example, if I said, a person who behaves toward another in a way that shows romantic interest and a thought you have about how to do something, that would clue what with the what? Flirt with the thought? No, I don't know. Flirt with the idea. Flirt with the idea. Yes, flirt with the idea. Perfect. Oh, okay. Great. I like this. So there's two ways for me to not get the answer. Nice. (laughs) Exactly. As we say in the puzzle world, there's also two ways in. Oh, sure. (laughs) I see. Okay. (laughs) Here are some more. Here we go. Okay. Waltzing and tangoing and Betelgeuse and Vega. Dancing with the stars. Yes. Dancing with the stars. Good. Okay. No longer present and Zephyr and Sirocco. Gone with the wind. Yes, Ooh, gone with nice. the wind. Nice. Sirocco. One each now. That's good. Mistral. Falls unconscious and pike and mackerel. Sleeps with the fishes. Sleeps with oh, the very fishes. Good. Okay. <laughs> Luca Brazzi sleeps with the fishes. It's a message. Blank with the blank. Leave a place and continuous movement of liquid. Go with the flow. Go with the flow. Go go. with the flow. Yes, very nice. Obtained and television broadcast. Get the picture. No. Remember with. Um, Remember with. Oh, with. Oh, I see. Um, This is hard. Obtain something with. What? Mm. Obtain and television broadcast. On with the show. No, you had the first one, right? Get with the show. Get with the program. Get with the program. Get with the program. All right. Yes, nicely done. Celebrity questions and answers and supernatural bloodsucker. Stars, stars with the chupacabra. No. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, interview with the vampire. There we interview go. with the vampire. Very nice. I like. I should like this one. It sounds very sweet. A lord's wife and source of light. Lady with the sun. Lady with the star. Lady with the light bulb. Lady with the. With the blue dress Lady on. with the lamp. Yes, lady with the lamp. Gosh. Very nice. Okay. Male person and blueprints. Man with the plan. Nice. Man with the plan, yes. Here's the last one. Turn over and over and hit with the fists. Roll with the punches. Roll with the punches. Yes, very good. Nice work, you guys. John, you're the host with the most. Oh, that's what I wanted to hear. Thank you so much. <laughs> what she means is you have are. parasites, and we'll get those off after the show. <laughs> thanks, thanks John. <laughs> All right, call the exterminator. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. Bye. You know, quizzes are just some of the things that we do here. We also answer questions about language. Give us a call. 877-929-9673. Email us, words at waywardradio.org, and find us on Facebook and Twitter. Hi, you have a way with words. Um, Hi, Martha and Grant. This is Steve Brankham calling from Milwaukee. Hi, Hello, Steve. Steve. Welcome. What's up? Thank you. Um, I've been listening to your show for years, and if nothing else, I've learned that English is subject to a lot of variations and regional dialects, and that no one particular form is the correct one. Mm-hmm. Well, something occurred to me while I was reading a book the other day, which was an Isabel Allende book, which, of course, she writes in Spanish, but it was translated. And one word got me thinking about this, and I started to wonder if there's no correct way to write or speak English. How does a translator know what to translate it to? Are there guidelines? Is there kind of a translator's convention for how they do that? Is it up to the publisher, the editor, whatever? Interesting. And Um, what was the passage? The word was sack. And it struck me, why didn't she use bag? Why sack? Sack. Sack. Mm S-A-C-K. Sack. So then that that one simple question I had ballooned into this larger question that really I have no idea 
This is a really good question. This is a a question that translators struggle with. There is a translator by the name of B.J. Epstein, and she took a look at the translations of The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn into Swedish. And I think she compared something like 15 different translations. Now, she lived for a time in Sweden. She still translates between Swedish and English. Um, and she, what she figured out was that these translations, um, many of them just basically did standard Swedish as the form on the other end, moving from English into Swedish, and did not try to translate any of the dialects of the speakers, not Jim, not Huck, not any of the Missouri kind of drawl, none of that showed up in Swedish. And so those translators made a choice just to go from mainstream Swedish. And when you're translating into English, say from an Allende novel, it's up to the translator to decide whether or not they want to choose just kind of a mainstream kind of generic English or if they want to try to recreate um, period jargon or age-specific slang or regional kind of inflections, that sort of thing. And usually what you'll find, though, is the default for a lot of translations is academies because Ooh. the people who are translating tend to be fully schooled in the literature of the two communities, the two cultures that they're moving from. And that's the level that they're operating at. They're operating at kind of a a university level of language almost. So Huck Finn was translated into a more formal language? Well, standard. I didn't mean to say formal. I meant to say standard, which is just kind of more everyday. So they didn't, Uh for example, try to do um, what would a rural kind of uh-huh. uh, unschooled, uh-huh. barefooted boy sound like in Sweden? They didn't try to do Huck that way. Gee, that sounds like sort of a shame, doesn't it? I, it does, but the, the the other end of the problem is this. How do you communicate that? Um, so, so Steve, what the problem, uh, the problem would be, uh, let's just stick with Huck Finn as a really good example. The problem would be, I've got a rural, uneducated young man who kind of doesn't have parents and kind of lives in a sleeps in a barrel, right? And what is the equivalent accent that I would find in Swedish for that kid? Mm. Is there such a language? Now you might say, well, I'm just going to make him sound uncultured and make some typical grammatical errors. That's one way to do it. You might also say, well, I'm going to make him sound like these certain kind of people in the south of Sweden who are seen as uncultured or rustic, and he'll just adopt their language because the signal this is sent out to all my Swedish readers is, um, oh, you know, we're going to build upon your stereotypes, take advantage of what you think about this kind of speech so that you will understand who Huck is and what he's about just by the choice that we made in the dialect. Uh-huh. It's complicated, and I and you know I, I know we have many translators listening to the show, um, who will probably chime chime in and, sure and so. offer their opinions on this. Steve, if you want to know more about this, I do recommend that you read the blog by B.J. Epstein, the translator that I mentioned. She keeps a blog called bravenewwords.blogspot.co.uk. You can just Google her name, B.J. Epstein, and you'll find it. Um, Probably be your first result. Um, She keeps a very active blog. She talks about these day-to-day issues. She talks about her work. Um, It's very easy to read, even if you're not a translator. Is she she, a native English speaker? Yes, she is. She grew up in uh, the Midwest, I believe, Chicago. And she talks at length about this stuff, and it's it's an enjoyable read. She's a good writer, which probably mm. makes her a good translator as well. So I, I would recommend cool. that as a little bit of homework for you, okay? I'll do that. It's something to do when I'm not listening to Away With Words. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you so much for your call, Steve. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Much appreciated. We'd love to hear your experiences with reading books in translation. You can call us at 877-929-9673 or send them an email to words at waywardradio.org. Grant, remember when we were talking about things that photographers say to get people to smile? Oh, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like say cheese or say whiskey, that kind of thing. We heard from Aaron in Santa Rosa, California, who said that photographers will tell people to look sexy by saying the word prunes. Prunes? Why, so that... You look sexy when oh, you yeah, say so that. Oh, yeah, a little, yeah, a little, yeah, a little, trout little pucker, yeah. Prunes. <laughs> <laughs> 877-929-9673. Hello, you have a way with words. Hello, this is Lewis in Indianapolis, Indiana. Hi, Lewis. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? What can we help Th- with? Hey, thank you. Thank you. Okay, I'm a retired freight train conductor, and we have some slang that we use on railroads, and we got one particularly. They don't use them anymore, but we had a, what used to be called a caboose. And um, 
it was always referred to as a crummy. And I used to ask the guys, and I used to look at different railroad books and things, and I could never find a definition or an origin of why the caboose was called a crummy. And that's my question. Why is a caboose called a crummy in railroading? Did you know that, Mark? Yeah, and, and what, the, what would have been the origin of the word? Hmm. I knew the term existed, but I'm not sure that we have an origin for crummy. No, we know that it's oh. a, at least 100 years old is a bit of railroad slang. Most people outside of railroading don't know crummy mm-hmm. can mean caboose. Mm-hmm. Or it used to refer to the brake van, or is that the same thing as the caboose? Yeah, they used to call it a uh, van, a way car, or right. hack. Things like that. So yeah. the caboose is where the the employees spend their time, right? Do you have bunks there and maybe a place to sit and eat oh, yeah. or to store your yeah, stuff, I, like lockers? Yeah, when I when I came on board, we would be in there sometimes nine to ten hours on a run before we got to a crew change, and uh, so it you know you had all the facilities there. You had living, you know, basically living facilities that you could eat, sleep, and whatever on it, mm-hmm. and. Um, so uh, myself, I thought one time it was called crummy because a lot of times the crew that we would relieve on it would leave the thing in such a mess that I thought of saying, boy, this thing sure is crummy. You and know what, Lewis? Thought, that, uh-huh. may, that is the strongest theory that I've read about this, that is exactly uh-huh. why, that because they leave like, food little everywhere. <laughs> Crumbs. And, yep. and fleas mm-hmm. or lice and <laughs> Everything. dirty clothes. Chicken bones on the yeah, floor. Exactly, like chicken bones. <laughs> Has there, ever been a, has there ever you been a better it. sign of a pig than a chicken bone? I gotta tell you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now you didn't do that, so, did you, Lewis? For the next. Oh no, no. I always tried to leave it clean because I said I, don't, I, you know, I hated getting on one that was dirty, and so I'd always try to leave it clean. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll just throw one more at you. Uh, the uh, slang for the maintenance of way guys back then used to be those are the fellows that maintain the tracks and the ties and stuff. They were called Gandhi dancers. Gandhi dancers. I've heard, I've definitely heard that one. Mm-hmm. Were you? Uh-huh. Did you ever do that work? Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> that's that's hard work. That was back then. It was. It's easy now. They got machines and stuff. But right, these, mm-hmm. these are the fellows that, that kind of uh, if the rails kind of get out of alignment or need a mm-hmm. few more. Right, wax. they come in. Yeah, they have a crew and a work train used to come through and uh, they would uh, repair the ties, put new ties down, new rails down, things like that. Yeah. There's a brilliant documentary. It's about a half hour long. You can find it at folkstreams.net about Gandhi uh-huh. dancers. And they've got some of the old timers singing the songs while they're working. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah they and used to do that. <laughs> it's really interesting. Yeah. Because they've all got to work together. So they have to find that rhythm. So they're all pushing on the rail yeah. with these really long, heavy rods at the same time, just kind of yeah. easing back and forth, pushing that, that mm-hmm. rail over. It's right. Really, Hence the dancing, right? Yeah. Exactly. Because they're yeah. literally dancing as they're like all together in unison, easing back yeah. and forth, pushing those rails mm-hmm. into place. Yeah. Well, I do. I thank you all for, for the information. And, um, uh, it, the, the, like the one for crummy, it, I've read in every book it said no one could even find out the origin or where it came from. Well, we're not much better than that, but I like your theory, and it's uh, mm-hmm. a few other people who study slang think that your theories hold some water as well, all right? All right. Well, thank you so much for your help. Hey, thanks for listening, thanks for Lewis, the first... and thanks for calling. Really yeah. appreciate it. Thanks for that first-hand okay. report. <laughs> Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye, Bye-bye. The Gandhi part of Gandhi Dancer is yep. a little more of a mystery. Supposedly mm-hmm. it comes from the Gandhi Manufacturing Company of Chicago. There are some tools that say Gandhi Manufacturing Company of Chicago, but it's okay. possible that company came after the after. term. The term existed mm-hmm. and they just took the name, mm-hmm. so we don't really know for sure. Mm-hmm. Gandhi Dancer. Gandhi Dancer. But that sounds like an interesting life, writing, writing in the crummy, right? <laughs> <laughs> Getting out once in a while to do I'd a like Gandhi to be the dancing. first crew there. <laughs> yeah, the first crew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we love it when people call us about their workplace slang, so we invite you to do that, 877-929-9673, or send it an email to words at waywardradio.org. Grant, you 
and I both get a lot of requests to do things, whether it's blurbing a book or appearing someplace, mm-hmm. and it's, it's hard to turn people down, oh, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Well, here's a great example of how to do it. This is a letter that E.B. White wrote in uh, 1956 uh, in response to somebody who was asking him to be on a committee. He says, Dear Mr. Adams, thank you for your letter inviting me to join the Committee of the Arts and Sciences for Eisenhower. I must decline for secret reasons. Sincerely, E.B. White. (laughs) I am so stealing that, right? (laughs) It just sounds so important. I must decline, comma, for secret reasons. And it leaves you as desirable, even more desirable the next time. So they're going to elevate the options, right? Right, right. Next time we want you to lead the committee. (laughs) Exactly. 877-929-9673. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, uh, my name is Tony Price. I'm calling from Indianapolis. Hi, Tony. How you doing? I'm doing fine. Uh, I've got a word uh, my grandmother used to use, and it was it was DOPIS. I think D O P I S, and it and it meant someone who was kind of slopping around in their food, especially as a child. And she would say, "Yeah, don't be a DOPIS." Don't be a DOPIS. Hmm. She didn't happen to come from Pennsylvania, did she? We we have family in Pennsylvania. Um, but she also, well, the area of Indiana I'm from is uh, very high in German Catholic. Ah, that might explain Yes, um, and it's a word that means often clumsy or awkward, and you usually see it D-O-P-P-I-C-H, doppich. Sometimes doppelic as well, D-O-P-P-L-I-C-H. Yeah, there are lots of different spellings, and it comes from Pennsylvania Dutch. It goes back to a German word that means the same thing, clumsy or awkward. sounds the same. But that's that's funny because I've never heard anyone else use use the word, and, and that's why I called. Uh, I tried to use it once with my daughter, and it made her cry. So I took it out of my vocabulary. And she was about, about she was about five at the time, so I, I thought, well, I'll, I'll, don't no 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 need to use that one. Well, why did she cry? Did she think you were saying bad she, words to her? Well, I, you know, maybe it was just the tone, but she just started crying and said, I, I don't want to be a doppist. And I said, honey, you're not. Oh, and that was, that, that was the last time I used that word. <laughs> Poor thing. But children children are sensitive, right? Yeah. She just knew, yeah. knew from context that it but, was something she didn't want to be. Yes. Yeah, I, I definitely think the context, the, probably the context and the tone, she knew, I, she knew it wasn't complimentary. Yeah. Oh, no, it doesn't have anything to do with the word dope. It it goes back to um to German. So that's probably where wow. you picked it up. Yeah, that's funny. Well, I always want to know and I enjoy your show and I appreciate uh, taking my call. Thank you. Thanks, Tony. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You take care. Bye-bye. Pennsylvania Dutch is a rich mine of language. Isn't it? There's a cool word that they have that some people still use in the English-speaking part of the country that has Pennsylvania Dutch settlers. Grex to complain, G-R-E-X. Do you know this one? Grex? No, that's I, great. That's uh, a Latin word for flock, I think. Uh, yeah, so I'm Googling here, and I came across a book that you should definitely read, by the uh, okay. way. Okay, all right. Thrill of the Chaste, the Allure of Amish Romance Novels <laughs> by Valerie Weaver Zerker. So apparently, she's written a book about a category of books that I did not know existed. There's a category of Amish romance novels. I'm imagining big shirtless men with huge beards (laughs) holding the woman in a wagon or something on the cover, right? Or sitting next to her. Thrill of the chase. I love that. And the big moment in every book is probably like, the candle blew out and something (laughs) happened in the dark. Clearly, further research is needed. (laughs) I will get you a copy for Christmas. (laughs) I'll see if I can have the author inscribe it. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. That's great. 877-929-9673 or send an email to words at waywardradio.org. Hop on the language bus as Away With Words continues. Got a minute? We need your help. Head over to gum.fm slash words and share your thoughts in our quick survey. Your feedback matters. It's the backbone of our show's success. Thanks for making our show even more successful. That's gum.fm slash W-O-R-D-S. Thank you.
You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. And it's that time of year when we give our annual book recommendations. Grant, what you got? I've got one book to recommend this year. I feel a little like I should come with an army of books to recommend. Mm -hmm. Certainly, there's a lot going on in our house Mm book-wise. But this one book I wanted to share with you because my son really loves it. And so I'm kind of passing along his recommendation. The book is called Valley Cats. It's by Gretchen Preston with illustrations by Karen Newman. And so the book is about Booney and River, who are two cats who kind of live in a uh, kind of almost country environment where there are humans who have lives and cats who have lives. And we hear the voices of the cats and the voices of the humans. And it's about their relationships and the adventures they get up to. And the inside covers of the books are maps. Mm-hmm. This is one of the things he particularly loves ah, about okay. the book. My son really likes the fact that when they go to a place near the river, he can see the river or the treehouse, he can see the treehouse. Mm-hmm. And then kind of place them in their environment. Um, it's a long book. It's a thick book. It's a chapter book. Um, big illustrations on some page. Mm. But it's something that uh, you need a steady reader to do uh-huh. or a parent needs to read it to the child. Like your child can't really be a newbie. So we read this at bedtime a couple chapters at, at, a, at a go. Um, and the, I think the reason my son loves this book, Valley Cats, mm-hmm. is that he's really kind of getting into the lives of these ki- these kittens or these cats. So Boonie and River uh, they're kind of like us, but a little different. So some of their concerns are cat concerns and not really human concerns. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of seeing through the oh, cat's eyes okay. how our cats might perceive us and think of us. Oh, okay. So there's a scene where a cat befriends a blind man who moves into the neighborhood. And we understand that the cat decides that he's going to adopt this person and climbs up on his lap and becomes his buddy. And my son was just kind of taken with this idea that the cats have a will. An initiative, and he'd never really mm-hmm. quite thought about that of these these beings as being something other than cute little, uh-huh. you know, things there for his for his enjoyment. That they have their own internal lives. That's very cool. That's what fiction does, right? Yeah. Is get us outside of ourselves. So that book is Valley Cats by. Gretchen Preston with illustrations by Karen Newman. And I should say, we haven't read them yet, but there are two more books in the series, More Valley Cats. And the next one, uh, Valley Cats, The Adventures of Boonie and River, was just released. Very cool. Well, Grant, I have a book that I'm really excited about, and I know you're going to love it. Now, picture this. You and I are both admirers of Brian Garner, mm-hmm. the author of Modern American Usage, mm-hmm. right? And we're also fans of David Foster Wallace. Yes, yes we are. Who died, unfortunately, in 2008. Wouldn't it be cool if you could get the two of them together for a casual conversation about language and the craft of writing and that kind of thing? Wouldn't Ah, that be cool? Yes, and you have something for me? I have something for you because (laughs) this happened. It's so cool. They were friends, the two of them. And in 2006, they videotaped a casual conversation together at a hotel in Los Angeles. So it turns out that there's this marvelous conversation between the two of them that he has transcribed and published as a book called Quack This Way, David Foster Wallace and Brian A. Garner Talk About Language and Writing. And Grant, it's short. You can read it in one evening, but it is a gem. It's just this gorgeous book of these two guys sitting around talking shop, and we get to to eavesdrop on it. Sounds fantastic. Two, two very intelligent men coming from different ends of the writing spectrum, but right. meeting in the middle to see where they overlap and to see where they differ. This isn't their carefully crafted prose. This right. is them chewing on ideas and kicking them back and forth. And David Foster Wallace comes across as so passionate and precise and also kind of self-effacing. There are a lot of times in the uh, transcript where he says, I know you're going to cut this, but blah, blah, blah. And, right. and of course, that's some <laughs> of the best stuff, right? right? It, they talk about airline jargon. They talk about when you might want to use the passive voice. I mean, all this kind of stuff that we talk about on the show, it's just, it's really a thrilling read. I can't recommend it highly enough. And the book again? Quack This Way. Isn't that great? That's fantastic. (laughs) We'll put links to these book recommendations on our website. And, you know, we're always interested in the books that you're reading that you think we should share with the rest of the audience. Let us know, 877-929-9673, or email words at waywardradio.org. Hi, you have a way with words. Hi, Martha. This is Pat Brennan speaking. Uh, I live in San Diego. Hi, Pat. And Welcome. I had a question about accents. Okay. We'd love to hear um, it. I grew up in Gloucester, Massachusetts, and at a young age, uh, we moved to, to San Diego uh, for the fishing industry in um, uh, Point Loma. Mm-hmm. I have had this accent that I have since I was about 15 
in California. I've had, of course, I had before that, and I have been commented on by every single person I have ever met in my life as soon as I open my mouth, and I don't even say a word with an R in it. I, they just, they know I'm from somewhere, but they don't know where. Uh, all my cousins have lost their accents and do not have the Boston accent anymore, and I'm wondering where does this accent come from and what mix of English or French or, or, or the people coming down from uh, Newfoundland and Nova Scotia, the Irish, where, where, is this, where did this accent come from? Well, I like mm-hmm. it, Pat. It reminds me of my Boston relatives. There's a short story to tell you. Actually, this is a deep subject that requires reading a book to fully understand. But the brief version of this story, the briefest that I can make it, is that it used to be that there was full roticity in American English. That is, we all pronounced our R's. But there became a period where the people of power, the people who had prestige, the ones that we looked up to, the people who led our institutions, they began to pronounce it without an R. They they, they lost their roticity. They lost their R in certain situations after certain vowels in certain words. It's not that you don't pronounce the R's. You either pronounce them differently or you don't pronounce them in just a certain class of words. And you've got vowel changes that go along with that R change. For example, you probably say carry instead of carry. So this persisted well up through the early 1900s up to the period of World War II where after the war, this accent loses its prestige. It loses its association with the Boston Brahmins. It loses its association with people of class and money and style uh, of education. Yeah, and I'm thinking of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Yeah. yeah, and because there was a period before World War II where um, this was the accent that was taught to people who were in film and radio. It wasn't perfectly like the Boston accent, but it was close, and they did certain things with their ahs. Father might be more thing that you'd say. <laughs> it's not Scots. It's not Irish. It actually comes to us from the educated class in the UK. It's called RP, Received Pronunciation. And actually, the Rlessness in the UK is actually um, also kind of a, a modern invention as well. It didn't used to exist as well. Somehow, the people in power um, were able to adopt this accent, and it became the thing to speak. We tend to speak like the people we respect and the people who control our worlds. And in that way, an accent spreads. So it's not usually going to rise from the bottom up. It's going to use from the rise. It's going to drop from the top down. And so that accent then moved to the power centers of the United States, New York City, and Boston. And then they took a strong hold among the educated classes there. Those also tended to be the moneyed classes and the elected classes. And in that way, the accent became a thing to emulate by strivers and people who wanted to look or act as if they were um, on a higher social scale than they'd been born to. So that's really I, the short version of it. Well, it's, a, it, it's good to know that it, uh, it had a beginning and, uh, and that uh, it's slowly fading, it appears, like you say, in all the states. So um, I'll just keep on. Yeah, I'd <laughs> yes, hang on Martha. to it, Pat. I yeah, think sure. it's charming. I do too. Thank um, you for calling. Okay, thank you so much. Bye-bye. I should say that there's one place where R-lessness, that is the tendency not to use an R after a vowel in certain words, is increasing, and that is in the speech of young Mm African-Americans. So we have different trends happening among different speech communities, different conventions taking hold. I love this. Pat's accent probably will become archaic at some point. Right. Yeah, and it's kind of already happened in New York City. The The New York City accent from the 1930s is really hard to find now, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. kind of more generalized to a regional accent. And that's the way language goes, and that's what we love watching and listening to and talking about. Give us a call, 877-929-9673, or send an email to words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is uh, Professor Benjamin Davis. I'm the CBS Harold Dow Professor at Florida A&M University. Oh, very good. Welcome to the program, Professor. How can we help you? I just have a question about the use of the noun hospital. And when it's turned into hospitalized, uh, the IEZ form of it. Now, when I was going through graduate school, I had this great professor, Merv Block, who taught us when writing broadcast not to say hospitalized. Uh, he said, use your vocabulary. Say what it is. And, you know, for the world of me, I can't teach my students that anymore because mm-hmm. it's everywhere. And when I tell them, I say, well, you know, it's a generally accepted term, but I prefer that you not use it. I'm wondering what you guys think about it. 
So his injunction was against using hospitalize as a verb. Yes. Did he have an argument? Uh, yeah, he was really for our using vocabulary, using words to explain what we're trying to say. He was sent to the hospital. They are all in the hospital. Hospitalized is something that was really being adopted, I guess, at that time for broadcast reporters. Mm -hmm. And I guess I never got over his good teachings. So I, I think I'm either getting really old and I need to get with the times, or maybe you guys have some ideas of how this word can or should be used. Well, I was going to say, the word has sort of been normalized. Mm-hmm, definitely. It's a, got a good 40 years on it at this point. Um, when were you in school? Maybe the time it struck your professor as new. Um, actually, what was that, 84, I was at Columbia. Okay. Yeah, about 1984. Okay. And, and, and Merv Block was Walter Cronkite's writer for many years. So I just took whatever he taught to be gospel. Yeah, I could see that being really good advice for reporters who tend to slip easily into the jargon of their profession. And they slip into the jargon of the professions that they cover. Mm. So if they're writing about healthcare, they just pick it up. And some of that stuff is opaque. Or if they're writing about police situations, they pick up that language. Heck, even the traffic reporters pick up the language of like the, you know, the sheriffs and the traffic, the highway patrol, and, and they relay that to their audience. I, I wonder if his I wonder if his point about hospitalized wasn't related to trying to drop that journalistic voice, right? That, that, that kind of tone that journalists tend to take where I'm the, you know, I'm the arbiter of all good things in the world and, 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 and trying to get you to talk like a, a normal human being and maybe hospitalized was one of many examples? Possibly. Actually, that's what they tried to get us to do there. Right. I don't know if they succeeded with me, but yes, they were trying <laughs> to accomplish that. Well, you sound fine to me, but this, isn't a, this is a different kind of broadcast, isn't it? This yeah, is conversational. Yeah. Well, don't you think that the issue is really the I-Z-E? I mean, I said normalize earlier. I said it's been normalized and neither of you flinched. But I think that a lot of people um, get upset when you use I's after a noun like that. Right, when you, noun, when verb. you verb a noun, yeah. and particularly when you use the I-Z-E to make that noun into right. a verb. Yeah, this kind of complaint about I-Z-E verbs has been going on for four or 500 years. Really? Yeah, it has been. But the surprising number of these verbs slip by us completely unnoticed and unremarked upon, and nobody complains about them. But a few, a few are set aside for particular attention as being especially reprehensible, like incentivize or mm. hospitalize has come up a few times. I believe it was um, Edwin Newman in one of his in one of his books in the mid-70s um, used to complain about hospitalize and similar verbs. And yet it's counter to what we do, what we hear from some of our other listeners who want English to be simpler. Why do, why can't we have just one word for this idea of was admitted to the hospital instead of having to say out the long version of it. And I think Merv may have also been thinking that we were being lazy, and they mm -hmm. didn't want us to be lazy with words. Mm -hmm. um, it, he, so he, used to, he wanted you to be, have some intentionality about your word choices. But I think having a hard and fast rule against that word maybe isn't such a great idea. I'm sure we're going to have some responses from our other listeners about the word hospitalized. But, Professor, thank you very much for your call. Oh, you're quite welcome. Thanks right. for taking it. Take okay. care now. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, what do you think about this kind of thing? Call us, 877-929-9673. Send an email to words at waywardradio.org. And we're all over Facebook and Twitter. Grant, are you familiar with the site called songstowearpants2.com? <laughs> no. No, I'm not. <laughs> this is where Andrew Wang makes these adorable little videos. People write to him and request a song on a particular topic, and he writes a song and he performs it. And some of them are really great. But the reason that I'm talking about this is that um, somebody asked him to write a whole rap song without using the letter E, and he did it, and it's really, really good. And um, you can find it at songstowearpants2.com. But um, it's got a great refrain of, do you kids miss this fifth stiff glyph? I'm not using it. And he's holding up a cardboard cutout of the letter E. Uh. And he's saying, do you kids miss this fifth stiff glyph? I'm not using it. He's actually done a lot of videos like that that involve wordplay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so um, Sounds we Sounds like a clever fella. Yeah. The pan and, the pants, songs to wear pants too? Songstowearpants2.com. Okay. Check it out. 
877-929-9673 or send your emails to words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hello, this is Anne. Hi, Anne, where are you calling? Yes, this is Martha. Where are you calling us from? Amherst, Massachusetts. Amherst. Well, welcome to the show. How can we help you? Well, I have a question about a phrase that my grandmother used that I have never seen in, you know, in any literature. Um, She was born in 1869, and she was not wealthy, but she was proper. And my mother told me that she would never refer to a bull as a bull because of its role <laughs> in impregnating cows. Mm-hmm. So she called it she called it the animal. So I'm wondering if this was just my grandmother or if this was common in that era, the late 1800s, early 1900s. So there's an avoidance of the word bull because of the act of the bull in mm-hmm. breeding. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. I've heard of things similar to this, but never quite this. I've never heard the animal used that way, but H.L. Mencken called that period the golden age of euphemism. Mm-hmm. There were lots of different euphemisms like that for bulls for yeah. that reason. Tons of avoidance. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy how much they invested all their time in avoiding it because it was so suggestive to them. There are all kinds of... Uh, of uh, euphemisms like that from that period, you know, referring to a corset as a foundation instead. In fact, oh, my, yeah, she might have done that actually. Yeah, now that you mentioned it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think she might have. Or you might talk about a flirtatious woman being very free in her manners. Uh huh. Uh huh. I'd be interested to hear if anybody else called bulls the animal as opposed to a cow brute. Or... And people actually said the cow brute, <laughs> oh, or the yeah. gentleman cow. Cow brute, male cow, nice critter, Very beast, anything, anything but bull. So your grandmother was connected to a larger trend in the history of English, this kind of pulling back of saying words that had been considered ordinary and deciding that they were newly improper to say. Well, Anne, we, we appreciate your uh, bringing this to our attention. Well, thank you. All right, okay. take care now. Take Bye-bye. Care. I love your show. Oh, thank, thank you. you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org. And at that same address, waywardradio.org, you can find our discussion forum on all of our past episodes. Things have come to a pretty pass. That's all for today's broadcast, but don't wait till next week. You can join us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, or SoundCloud. And check out our website, waywardradio.org. You'll find a dictionary, a newsletter, mobile apps, and a discussion forum. You can also listen to hundreds of past episodes free of charge. Leave us a message anytime at 877-929-9673. Share your family's stories about language or ask us to resolve language disputes at work, home, or school. You can email us. The address is words at waywardradio.org. Our senior producer is Stephanie Levine. The show is directed this week by Mark Kirchner and edited by Tim Felton. We have production help from James Ramsey. Away With Words is independently produced and distributed by Wayward Inc., a nonprofit supported by listeners and organizations who believe in lifelong learning and better human communication. We're coming to you this week from the Recording Arts Center at Studio West in San Diego, California. Thanks for listening. I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett. Take care. Sayonara. You like tomato and I like tomato. Potato, potato, tomato, tomato. Let's call the whole thing off. But oh, if we call the whole thing off, then we must part. And oh, if we ever part, then that's